Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Politics in the Pulpit, a lectionary-based preaching resource designed to ask the provocative questions about whether and how politics should appear in our preaching this week. My name is Beth Alison Glennie, I'm a Baptist minister and I'm working as the Baptist Union's public issues enabler. Each week I am joined by a different guest from a different place or space on the political and preaching landscape. Today I'm very pleased to introduce the Reverend Martin Johnston. He's a Church of Scotland minister and he spends his time at the moment working with Poverty Truth Commissions and the Trussell Trust and uh, many other important places exploring those questions around faith and society. Thank you so much for joining us today Martin. Um, politics in the pulpit, I, I just I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about you and what that might mean for you and, and how you answer that question. Gosh, thanks Beth and it's really good to see you again <laughs> um, and you and I have spent a bit of time with JPIT over the years and so it's really good to be reconnecting. Um, I suspect when I think about faith and politics and the pulpit, I recognise that there's probably a particular lane through which I do that. So I often say to folk that for me there were three ways in which Jesus promised to continue to be with his disciples after their death after his death and when he ascended into heaven. The first was he promised to be with us in the sacrament. And the reality is that the church has divided itself over what is going on in the sacrament for 2000 years. Jesus promised to be with us in the gift of the Holy Spirit. And in 2000 years, the church has never really worked out a proper understanding of what the Holy Spirit can possibly be about. And he promised to be with us in the poorest and the most marginalized in that passage from Matthew 25. And I think for most of the 2000 years of the life of the church, if we've bothered about those who struggle against poverty at all, we've believed that it was our job to take good news to them rather than to receive good news from them. And the thing that I suspect has driven me through much of my life is not politics, it is that sense that if those who struggle against the injustice of poverty are the heralds of good news, what might I do to be alongside them? And what might I do to hear that good news for today and then share it with others? Hmm. And I think um, I think it's interesting that you reflected on a theology of the Holy Spirit. And I think um, a lot of the kind of contemporary theology of the Holy Spirit I see is, is this idea that um, actually the Holy Spirit is at work in the world. And we've, we've sometimes missed that um, in our kind of uh, kind of keeping the church as the holy club um, thing. And I, and I, I really um, 
yeah that for the the idea that we get to partner with god's mission rather than it kind of being you know that we take jesus in our pocket the holy spirit's over here in my in my space and then i get to take it out and kind of dish dish a bit of jesus <laughs> with the sacrament and it's only individualize the holy spirit rather than actually recognizing that the spirit she blows as she wishes uh in the world and and sometimes we think we've grasped her and then we discover her somewhere else and and actually almost that takes me certainly and we'll go into this in a few minutes into our gospel passage for today which has this verse about God so loved the world and one of the things that strikes me every single time I hear that verse is how we domesticate that verse and we treat the world as if it's the church and we treat the church as if it's just my understanding of church. Hmm. Yeah. So um, we're going to move on to the, to the passages in a minute. And uh, just before we get there, we always have a little nod to the situations that are going on that might be issues in the world um, of different sorts of justice or injustice. And I'm, I'm aware that always when we do this, it's kind of even our view of the world um, colours kind of what we think the justice issues might be. And, and I, was, I was saying earlier that you're based in Scotland and I, I'm based in England and, and I constantly miss what are the devolved issues and what aren't because despite having spent five of my years in, in Scotland, I, I never quite remember which bits of those are, are happening. But um, we've, got some, we've got some things that might be shaping the landscape of our week this week um, if we keep an eye on the news. So there's um, obviously a, a very exciting uh Megan and Harry interview being aired tonight, which I'm sure you're um, going to be <laughs> going to be going for, um, which um, we might joke about, but actually it's part of our politics, isn't it? And, and actually going to be shaping quite a lot about what people think about and talk about in the week to come. Always, I think, worth noticing when these big uh, kind of royal stories hit. What's uh, what's what else does the government just decide to quietly um, check out at the same time because they they think the news the news copy's been taken up elsewhere? So um, that's a question we don't know that yet, but it's worth worth bearing um, that in, in mind. Um, I think um, we've been responding to the budget. It's obviously a, a, a kind of a Westminster budget, but um, we've been responding to that budget and the head headline green initiatives in that. Um, um, really, I think. We've we've kind of been asking the question of JPIT whether those mask the failure to um, to really address the fundamental changes that are needed to transition to a just and green economy, um, because um, the kind of the freeze on fuel duty, uh, the pegging of the carbon price support rates at eighteen pounds to twenty twenty three, they seem to suggest that that commitment might be quite half hearted on behalf of the government and. Um, something if uh, as we're moving towards COP in, in October, kind of really having our eye on as um, the church. And then also, um, yeah, the, the the kind of one of the key questions that we've been thinking about has been this, um, uh, how we've how we've committed to world aid at the moment as a UK. And, um, and it's noticeable that the support that we're giving to humanitarian work in Yemen at the moment is, uh, is being halved this week. Um, and that the UK is the only G7 country to be reducing its overseas aid commitments in this time of coronavirus. And I think um, 
it's, it's just worth reflecting on you know we're kind of a very powerful nation in the world and and that's that seems to be how we're responding to those situations um and there's also uh an interesting survey that's been done um that suggests that um, even amongst the most privileged renters in our society one in 20 was behind on their rent in december 2020 so there's a lot going on i think um in terms of a kind of injustice and inequality that um that I think the budget sort of touches um, on and we kind of need to be bearing that in mind, especially partly as the pastoral fallout in our churches as well for many who are struggling to afford to pay their bills. Um, and then I, I think... Sorry, sorry Beth, and, and that sort of sense, so, so one of the things I do is I'm a, a trustee with Christian Aid, so certainly those cuts in the international development budget is something that we are acutely aware of it it does seem to me it speaks of a britain and this gets us into politics it speaks of a britain that actually is drawing constantly drawing up the drawbridge and thinking about itself rather than necessarily its place in making for a better world uh, and I think that sort of selfishness, I think we see then flowing through into how we're dealing with the climate, but also things like uh, we will extend out for another six months the uplift in universal credit. But, you know, at some point we're going to stop giving that money, which is an absolute lifeline. And it's likely that we stop giving that money at the point when many of those who've ended up in universal credit directly because of the pandemic may well have found themselves back into employment. But those who were on universal credit beforehand remain stuck and then poorer off as a result. Mm. Thank you. Yeah. So in the church calendar this week, as we're thinking about preaching, um, it's also Mothering Sunday. And mm -hmm. I think, um, you know, it's a time where most people actually might not be seeing their mothers um, or uh, their children or who, however that's relating. And there's always, I think, um, as a as a minister, I was very, very aware of the pastoral questions that sit behind Mothering Sunday that I think, um, you know, we, we talk very casually about the church being a mother, um, but actually, you know, in the kind of the giving out of the daffodils, there are um, lots of potentially very uh, complex pastoral questions. And um, I think some of those are social and uh, political. And I think therefore kind of, it's worth just mentioning simply from that perspective that those are things that we should be thinking about if we're going to preach a Mother's Day themed sermon that that needs deep reflection on how that might impact people and kind of who who isn't there this week is always the the who's never there on Mothering Sunday is always the question that I have in in the back of my head and um who absents themselves because it's too painful for whatever reason and just being really yeah I think I think part of preaching justly for me is about really uh, sometimes it's about naming pain and sometimes it's just about trying to avoid some of the situations that cause the pain and, and you have to work it out depending on your community and your context and doing it online is a whole different ballgame but um, yeah those are... and, and some of that is really I think complicated gender stuff as well but I think this Mothering Sunday we kind of think probably not simply of mothers 
but of some of the responsibilities that women have often historically held in our society. So actually so much of the stuff which is around care mm. and looking after, uh, which is part of that feminine side of all of us, um, is stuff that is absolutely at the core of what will be on people's minds this Sunday. So, mm. so in some ways, this is about a mothering Sunday, but it's also about a Sunday when we think of those who have exercised, particularly over this last year, and are exercising that real duty of care, whether it's within our health service or whether it's the role of carers within the home. Uh, you know, I think that that stuff feels really, really important. Yeah, and absolutely. And I think Mother's Day itself even has these kind of historically kind of um, these roots in the people who cared for, doesn't it? Because um, it would have been the, the serving classes, you know, the servants who were in uh, domestic houses who went home. That was their Sunday to go home. And I think... Um, you know, you think, you think now there's just the one Sunday that you go and get to see your family. And we've, we've spent a year kind of locked down away from ours in a particular way in a, in a household, not necessarily in a family unit. And I think um, it's, it's such an interesting, you know, it's such an interesting thing that this has become part of a church calendar in the way that it has. Um, yeah, which is it's quite it's quite about kind of social structure and its history. And I think, yeah, you could, you could use that as a way of jumping off, I think, and reflecting on some of that. I think for me, it's also interesting now, less within the tradition of which I'm a part, but this is historically Litari Sunday, mm -hmm. uh, which is that Sunday, which was a feast day. So a breaking with Lent, with the Lenten discipline. Um, and I think, again, there are some really interesting things potentially there about, you know, how we continue in really hard times, but how we also see a bit of hope and light and hope, which are words, symbols that, that I think run through certainly a number of our passages uh, for mm -hmm. Sunday. Well, we are going to move smoothly on with that little uh, nod to the passages. So this week um, we've got uh, again our, our lecturing Bible passages and they are um, Numbers in the Old Testament and Numbers 21. Uh, we've got um, in the New Testament, we've got Ephesians and our gospel passage is John 3, 14 to 21. Um, you've already alluded to that a little bit. Uh, Martin, do you want to kick us off is there a particular theme a particular passage or something that's jumped out to you that kind of you want to say yeah this this would be the thing for me so i suspect the the connections that i made i think the ephesians passage is a wonderful passage and it's about reconciliation and but i think probably as i've read through those passages probably the connections i would want to make would be around the numbers passage mm -hmm. uh, and around the John passage. Um, and, and that is partly because in, in John 3.14, we've got this alluding back 
to what appears to be this utterly bonkers uh, story uh, in numbers of uh, the the snakes uh, coming and biting people because God has sent the snakes. Um, and some of us have got real problems with that. Um, <laughs> and then what happens is the snake, you know, Moses puts a bronze snake on a stake and people can look at that, look up at that and be healed. Um, and certainly as I was thinking about that passage, I found myself thinking about vaccines and thinking about, um, how so often in the treatment of disease over this last century in particular, we've come to recognise that a tiny bit of the disease infected or injected into people's arms uh, becomes part of the cure. So, you know, I can see real jump-offs there. Um, I suspect... Um, for me, it's virtually impossible to look at our passages for this Sunday and not end up preaching about John 3. Um, partly because that John 3.16 passage is probably just about the best known passage in Scripture, certainly within a Protestant tradition. Um, and the, each time I come to it, I sort of reflect on how it's a classic illustration of what happens when you rip one verse of scripture away from the context in which it is spoken. And so, um, <coughs> excuse me, Beth, you will doubtless have seen uh, or you've probably seen, uh, and many of those watching this will have seen those John 3.16, just almost scripture verse stuck up on a wall somewhere as if this is the absolute core of what the gospel message is. Mm. Definitely have. I think it's really interesting. I was looking at the wider context of that as well and um and i i was reading um now i'm probably going to mispronounce this so my deep apologies johanna uh, catanacho's um reading of the gospel of john through palestinian eyes um and um which is a really it's a tiny little book um but i i was really aware that um i tend to come i tend to come with very kind of a particular style of white western commentary and I was trying to find something else that, that was just a little bit outside of that and um and and they uh Johanna points to the idea that there there is this comparison of Nicodemus because obviously it's it's happening in this 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 Jesus is having given us this big monologue isn't he about uh, God loving the world um following a conversation with Nicodemus and he's Nic she says Nicodemus is at the beginning and then the Samaritan woman um, follows immediately afterwards and there's this really clear uh, symmetry between the two stories so uh, he's named she's not funnily uh, he's a Jew she's a Samaritan uh, he's a leader of the Jews she's a woman without a husband so she's like the worst of the worst um, he saw signs she didn't see signs he came at night she came in the middle of the day 
he he did not accept the testimony of Christ, where she testified about Christ. Uh, he saw Christ as a rabbi or a teacher, and she saw him as nothing less than the savior of the world. Um, and this is kind of idea that this this passage comes in the middle and is the difference that um, you know here is Jesus being in Jerusalem with Nicodemus, and this is where he's saying all this stuff, and then suddenly they're going into Samaria. Um, and and but that there that place where the Holy Spirit should not be is actually where somebody gets it and 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 it's a woman without a name a Samaritan woman without a name who's who's like had seven husbands you know this whole kind of sordid history of like she could not be more shameful and she's the one that gets it um and it's again about this kind of not domesticating the Holy Spirit isn't it that actually you know here is here is the manifesto in the middle if you like that says this is why the, why you don't get it. The Holy Spirit is going to is not just tied up in Jerusalem in this place here, but is for the world um, and at work at the, in the world. And I, I found that really helpful little kind of insight into not seeing that taking that one little section. <laughs> and for for me, so I think that's absolutely fascinating. I probably would want us also to think: is there a way of imagining this passage as somehow a hinge? between these two stories. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I sometimes feel that Nicodemus gets a bad praise. Uh, you know, what he is, is he's a Pharisee. He's a, a leader of the Jews, which almost certainly means he's part of the Sanhedrin. Uh, it almost certainly means he's part of the government under occupation. So, so he, along with others, has been given responsibilities for temple worship. Um, and whereas many, many others uh, have kind of thought, well, that cuts us off from anyone like Jesus. Uh, what Nicodemus does is he comes, now albeit he comes at dead, at dead of night. Now, does he come at dead of night so as no one else sees him? Or does he come at dead of night because actually he's got something going on in his head that he just cannot escape? You know, there is something about what this Jesus person is talking about that is making it impossible for him to sleep. So he goes and tries to find out how he reconciles his model of theology, which is a model of nationalism, uh, which is a model about saying, actually, I really want to protect the faith from the Roman occupiers. And, and this message of this teacher called Jesus. So, you know, I, I want to at least try and give Nicodemus a bit of the benefit of the doubt that he is one of those people who occupies power, but actually is grappling with the fact that his power does not mean that he's got the whole story. I think it's interesting, isn't it? Because in our passage, we have this line about, but those who do what is true come to the light so that it may be clearly seen that their deeds have been done in God. And I think it's interesting that, you know, he's coming in the, the middle of the night and Jesus gives this passage about kind of deeds and ex 
being you know what we do being exposed in the light and and kind of that's very I think that's really interesting this idea that yeah he's come to the light hasn't he? he's come to Jesus who is the light of the world so so actually is that showing um showing his his commitment is yeah yeah that's very interesting I like I like trying to trying to save Nicodemus I think if he's got a name um you know I always think of um a kind of you know a new testament but a new testament degree from a long time ago um but i always think if he's got a name there was this suggestion that maybe that meant he was known to the community so actually this is his story and it's it's appeared to us we've got it because actually he was a known figure and i thought um so so it does sound like this is a this is a conversation this is the beginning of his conversation that's maybe gone on to see him become part of the church in quote yeah and, and i think it's helpful to think of him as no it's not quite the same but to think of him as a government minister mm. so so he is someone with public profile um i think it's also interesting and challenging for us to think a wee bit about the fact that while this story happens about the year 30, it's actually being recorded, if we understand things correctly, about the year 90. And it's happened at the point when the temple has been destroyed, where the Sadducees, who were the body who were in the majority government, uh, have been swept aside and where the Pharisees have a bit more sway. So I think there are all those things going on within the fact that this story is recorded as well, and that Nicodemus turns up again later on within the story as well. So, so it's an ongoing story. Mm. I wonder... Um, uh... There's, so Jesus makes this illusion, doesn't he, about the kind of the lifting up, um, the snake reference and the lifting up, which has very much got crucifixion at the heart of its kind of meaning. It's an Aramaic word, which I, I found out when I was looking this up. Um, and I um, I was thinking about the kind of connections between this passage and the, um, the kind of numbers passage, because it's quoted so directly and kind of trying to understand that. And I, I, I wonder if there's um, some things we can draw out around there as well, the kind of... Um, the idea that before people have just complained at Moses, um, they've also now invoked God as well. So they've having grumbled at Moses for leading them badly, they're now grumbling at God for leading them badly as well. And um, even in the context where they've actually just won a victory, <laughs> um, but the effect is, um, yeah, they can't even keep like track of their own complaint as well. That there's this kind of idea about um, there's no food and no clean water, and the food that we've got is 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 miserable. And it's this really interesting idea that they actually kind of confuse themselves. And if you think it's kind of the community complaint narrative that can be kind of built, that it doesn't even agree with itself. You know, there's no food. Well, the food we've got is terrible. Like you can't do those things. And of which there feels like there are so many parallels going on at the moment. So you know, if we think of um, that time in the wilderness now lasting 40 years uh, so gosh uh, we're not in as bad a position as we like but you know I was listening to a podcast the other day uh, where someone was saying that they were going to run this series of conversations during uh, lockdown uh, so they anticipated, this was last March, they anticipated doing that for the next couple of months. 
and a year later they are still doing it you know and and in effect um, i i hear the story of the the people of israel as recorded in numbers as that group of people who are impatient for these tough times to be over, who want to either get to the promised land or who want to get back to normal, we might say. Uh, and so again, you know, you kind of recognise that dissonance which is going on, that uneasiness that so many people within our communities are feeling of when, oh, when, oh, when, oh, when will this be over? Yeah, yeah. I um, I think it's interesting that um, I, I read a, a book, um, uh, it's Owl and Rambo's Post-Traumatic Public Theology. Um, I say I've read it, I've read the beginning chapter, so let's not uh, over-aggrandise that. But, um, but they, they, she, um, it's uh, Rambo who starts and she says that traumatic events seem like a more of an epidemic culture rather than an exception. And I just thought it was interesting that kind of uh, her, her this idea that actually there's kind of it feels like there's this constancy of kind of bad things happening. And um, and now obviously we're in a very traumatic kind of experience of being locked down, of, of COVID, of, of all that's going on. Um, and I was thinking that similarly for, for numbers, there's this kind of like lots of things have been going wrong. You know, they've got the trauma of of having come out of slavery and and then all of the um, the things that have gone on with the kind of the plagues and Miriam and and actually, you know, actually there's this kind of collection of like yet another thing, you know, and it's just, you know, the bread is the thing that the, the touchstone because it's about life, isn't it? It's just life is hard. It's miserable. And um, and actually, I kind of feel very sympathetic for that um, community. I, I, I think, you know, they're portrayed as kind of, you know, slight, you know, slightly selfish <laughs> and stuff. But I think I think I really kind of I think it works as a story on a human level because we kind of like, yeah, you've just eaten bread and it's just more bread and not very clean water. This is rubbish. You know, we can we can kind of get behind this idea that actually manner to maybe doesn't feel like manner after that many years um and i i think that's why the human heart of it is really interesting but i was i was really struck that both in this this bit about um in numbers and then this in, in romans uh, in romans in um in in john has this this idea of, of kind of of kind of being lifted up something being lifted up and and then um, and i wonder if there's something about kind of our communal shame and our communal sinfulness being, you know, we've talked about vaccines and kind of having a bit of the illness as part of the cure, that this idea that we're meant to look at what we've done wrong, so that, because um, because God doesn't just magic the snakes back away again, God says, okay, well, if you do get bitten, this is the answer, this is the cure, and I, um, and I, I just think it's really interesting that the kind of, it's looking at this kind of fiery coloured serpent on a, on a stake and thinking, well, actually that's you know that's what we we that shows us our kind of collective community shame and with Jesus where we look at Jesus on the cross and he is lifted up it is again kind of what happens when community um operates in certain ways and and has collateral damage in in different ways and that collateral damage being hugely like horribly costly and um and the kind of idea that we're expected to look up and look at that as part of our salvation and I think um I I just kind of where I was thinking where would I preach how would I preach this and I don't know how I would preach this because it's so hard isn't it like all these big theological questions in the background how would God do this to us and um and I think that is probably the pastoral question that needs answering in in 
COVID times, how, you know, God seems to have allowed this plague to happen in a way that God seems to have allowed snakes to happen. And is that, what's that mean? And who is God in that? And is God unjust? You know, we talk about justice. But what is it when God seems to be unjust? And, but I think it's something about maybe our kind of community operating causes, you know, God asks us to look at who we really are and the real fallout of who we are um, as part of somehow turning around and salvation and going into the light. I, I don't know. I think that's where I would probably try and land it somehow. I think I think that's right. And for me, it's about recognising that it's about our rather than my all the time. So when I was going off in one earlier on about how John 3.16 almost feels hauled out, you know, treat that verse on its own and it becomes something which is all about me mm -hmm. and about individualism. Uh, whereas actually treat that passage in context and it becomes about us and it becomes about our and we begin to have an understanding of belief is not the cerebral thing uh, but belief is about our faith in it's about our activity and um, I remember um, Many years ago, so I will almost certainly tell this story on Sunday. Uh, many, many years ago, um, sitting in the back of a Fiat Punto in southeast Brazil, uh, traveling from one city to another, um, and in that journey of about 150 miles, spending two and a half hours with someone called Dom Pedro Casaldaliga who was uh, a bishop within the Catholic Church in Rome and one of the, the great justice leaders uh, of the last century. Um, he was fascinating in terms of when he became bishop, one of the first things he did was he sold the bishop's palace and gave the money to the poor. And people would say that it made certain that he would never, ever become archbishop. <laughs> um, and at the time, he was being thought of as a potential future pope. And that would have been pretty catastrophic. Um, but uh, I remember speaking with Dom Pedro in the back of this bumpy ride on a, in a Fiat Punto. and him saying that the real thing that we needed to grapple with was it was not enough to have faith in Jesus. We needed to seek to have the faith of Jesus. Mm. Um, and that, that faith of Jesus was a Jesus that then railed against injustice and inequality and took sides deliberately with those who were at the margins of society. And so when I think of John 316, uh, I think of what it means to seek to believe in or to have the faith of Jesus rather than simply the cerebral stuff, which is very individualistic, mm -hmm. of 
believing in an intellectual construct. I think um, I was really struck. We haven't talked about Ephesians. We, we're definitely not going to have time. But uh, I think that um, there's this line um, that says uh, that Jesus, that God made us alive together. And I think that the togetherness is so important, isn't it? That actually we can't be alive on our own and that um, that we need to be together with God in that and then together with each other. And that there's something about that life of that kind of community, you know, Trinity as community and then the world as community. And we're kind of getting to kind of participate in that. I think. And, and to recognise that there, perhaps one of the most radical things about Christianity, and it's so radical that we miss it all the time, is that Christianity is first and foremost a community faith. It's not a faith of individuals who end up in community. It is first and foremost a faith of a community where people flourish as individuals within it. Mm. Oh, Amen. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on, Martin. We could talk about this for hours, I think, <laughs> and we really could. But um, we, we've uh, got to got to finish up um, before um, our time runs out today. Uh, but uh, thank you so much for coming and sharing your wisdom and your stories and and everything you've brought. It's been a brilliant conversation. Um, and a big thank you to everybody who's been watching us and joining in with this conversation. Um, and um, asking how or um, whether um, we should preach kind of politics in the pulpit this week. So let's go into our politics and our pulpits with a blessing. May we be anointed with God's spirit as we bring good news to the poor, proclaim release to the captives, help people to see the world truthfully and let the oppressed go free. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Martin. <laughs>